Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And we're continuing our series on uh, philosophy and theology in the, early, er, in the early church. And as you can tell from uh, perhaps my mellow tone of voice and my stumbling over words, um, it's late and I want to get this podcast done. So uh, I am going to stay up and talk about the next section and then we'll leave it off there and we'll talk about uh, Augustine tomorrow. Um, I just couldn't wait. Uh, Tertullian is one of my favorite authors in the early church and uh, he's just so clear. Uh, Augustine or Origen and, and Clement, I had to kind of go looking for the quotes. But Tertullian, um, he doesn't mess around um, and you know exactly what he's thinking all the time. Also, um, this is where it gets personal for me because um, he's representing conservatism or con- conserva- conservatism, uh, which is very much where I come from. This is my this is my peeps. This is my 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 family. I'm from uh, from a Mennonite church and a Baptist heritage, where um, higher education is very much not encouraged. Um, there are Mennonites now in the last generation, two generations that are getting an education, but historically it hasn't been emphasized. And, um, it's kind of funny because as I'm, you know, going back in history and reading all this stuff and getting super deep into philosophy and, and thinking seriously about taking a doctorate in philosophy, um, I've got stuck up on my desk, um, picture of my, my mentor and my hero, my idol, um, Ivan Raymer, and, um, you know, very different path than, uh, than, um, than what would be encouraged probably by, by my church, or, or even, you know, by Ivan likely, um, and, or by Tertullian, (laughs) getting back to our subject. Um, and so, in some ways, the reason I want to start here, and <clears throat> in my ta- in my podcast on philosophy, is that I feel the need to create an apologetic for why we need to do philosophy, um, <clears throat> because I hear the voice of Tertullian and other people in my head saying, "No, you can't do philosophy. It's going to mess up. It's going to pervert. It's going to water down um, the truth of scriptures." There's no way to do to mess to to do anything with philosophy without going down this path of liberalism that we just saw with Origen and Clement, without um, you know distorting the gospel, without syncretism. And I forgot to mention my favorite epithet for Origen is that he was the father of all orthodoxy and the father of all heresy, um, and. Uh, his teaching was helpful to the church, sure, but his teaching also created heresy and uh, all these troubles for the church. Um, so Tertullian comes out, <clears throat> comes out swinging. Uh, one of his, he's got two super famous quotes, um, and the, probably the most fam- famous one is, "What hath Jerusalem to do with Athens?" As he says in in um, against heretics. Um, and I'm going to pause this, and I'm just going to read you that whole section, because it's all great. All right, so fasten your seatbelts here. We're going to read um, uh, about five minutes worth of Tertullian here. It's a little bit older English. It was translated in the 
20s or something, uh, but nothing you can't handle. Alright, so this is from uh, Tertullian on, on Prescription Against Heretics. Chapter 7. Pagan philosophy is the parent of heresies, the connection between uh, a turning away from the Christian faith and the old system of pagan philosophy. Tertullian starts, These are the doctrines of men and demons, produced for the itching ears of the spirit of this world's wisdom. This is what the Lord called foolishness, and chose the foolish things of the world to confound the philosophy itself. For philosophy it is which is the material of the world's wisdom, the rash interpreter of the nature and dispensation of God. Indeed, heresies themselves are, are instigated by philosophy. Let me read that again. Heresies themselves are instigated by philosophy. From this source came the eons, and I know not what infinite forms, and the trinity of man in the system of Valentius, who was of Plato's school. From the same source came Marcion's better God. Okay, so he lists a bunch of, of heresies and their links to various schools. Um, sure, I can keep reading that, um, but just to tell you what's going on. Then again, the opinion that the soul dies is held by the Epicureans, while the denial of the rest, restoration of the body is taken from the aggregate school of all the philosophers. Also, when matter is made equal to God, then you have the teachings of Zeno. And when any doctrine is alleged touching a god of fire, then Heraclides comes in. Hey, we'll talk about Heraclides in a future podcast. The same subject matter is discussed over and over again by the heretics and by the philosophers. This part I highlighted is so fascinating. Okay, so same topics over and over uh, are involved. Where does evil come from? Why is it permitted? What is the origin of man? And in what way does it come? Fascinating. Those are those are the, the subjects that are so important for apologetics. Um, but continuing with him. Besides the question which Valentius has very lately posed, where does God come from? And that's still uh, the God delusion. His main argument was, where does God come from? Um, and this is in the second century that this was an issue for the philosophers. Which he settles with the answer, and then the answer is in Greek, so I don't know what the answer is. Unhappy Aristotle. So now he's going to attack Aristotle, the, the quintessential philosopher of West, uh, the father of modern science. Unhappy Aristotle, who invented for these men dialectics. Dialectics is the art of, of disputation, of argumentation, of proving your case through argument. So, bad on Aristotle for inventing dialectic. The art of building up and pulling down, an art so evasive in its propositions, so far-fetched in its conjectures, so harsh in its arguments, so productive of cont contentions, embarrassing even to itself, retracting everything and really treating of nothing. Whence spring those fables and endless genealogies and unprofitable, unprofitable questions and words which spread like cancer? So I can tell, but you might not be able to tell because there's quotation marks and, and uh, footnotes, but those are all scriptural references. Um, so he's calling, he's calling philosophy fables and endless genealogies as uh, it says... Footnote number twenty, number nineteen, First Timothy one four, uh, and unprofitable questions, as it talks about in Titus three nine, and words which spread like cancer, as it says in Second Timothy two seventeen. Now, none of these verses actually were. 
they're not clear about what sorts of words they are that are dangerous, um, but uh, Tertullian applies this all to philosophy. This is philosophy that we are being warned against. For all these, when the apostle would restrain us, he expressly names philosophy as that which he would have us be on our guard against. Writing to the Colossians, he says, See that, see that no one beguile you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and contrary to the wisdom of the Holy Ghost. Uh, so this is Colossians 2.8. So most Christians would read... Um, would would translate this see to it that no one deceives you through um, through vain philosophy or or would apply vanity to the philosophy that make sure nobody can, deceives you through bad sort of philosophy but Tertullian is reading it just straight up literally saying make sure that nobody takes captive view through philosophy all of philosophy is being warned against in this passage and it's against the truth that is through the Holy Spirit uh, he had been at Athens, so Paul had been at Athens, and he had, in his interviews with the philosophers, become acquainted with that human wisdom which pretends to know the truth, while whilst it only corrupts it and is itself divided in its own manifold, manifold heresies by the variety of its mutually repugnant sects. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? There's the quote. Ba-ding! What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? The academy is the school that was started by Plato in Athens. <laughs> Where else? Um, yeah, so what has the academy to do with the church? What between the heretics and the Christians? So there he is explicitly saying, philosophers, you're all heretics. Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart referring to wisdom of Solomon. I didn't think that was scriptures. So wisdom of Solomon is not, it's part of the Apocrypha. Um, so Protestants wouldn't have that as part of our Bible. Um, away with all attempts to produce a mottled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputations after possessing Jesus Christ, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief. For this is our palmary faith, that there is nothing which we ought to believe besides. So I don't actually know what the word palmary means. I'm going to pause this because that phrase was kind of important. All right, so you learn something every day. Uh, palmary means deserving uh, palm wreath, as in deserving of praise, as in praiseworthy or good. So he says, this is our good faith, that there is nothing, and there is nothing that we ought to believe besides it. Um, so he says, we got our faith, we got our scriptures, we believe them, that's it. Uh, philosophy is bad. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And he's used these verses, whether or not you want to say that he takes them in context or not, that's an exegetical matter, but he makes it very clear that... Um, all this philosophy nonsense is bad. Uh, and certainly as we look at uh, the Alexandrian school, we can see where he's coming from. And um, of course, what we mostly have from this time period is, is the major books that were written and preserved. Um, but you can imagine that there were all sorts of, of Joel Osteen's and, um, and um, Rob Bell's running around um, teaching, and they might not have, have uh, 
continued on, uh, but they certainly had an influence on uh, the culture in which they lived at the time. So given his radical rejection of philosophy, you'd think that he's not interested in missions or sharing his faith. Um, that's not true. Uh, he wrote um, a book called The Apology. Uh, Justin Martyr was the first to write an apology to... Um, basically, it was a letter to the emperor, and it was written in the form of, a f of an official legal address. So a defendant on the stand at that time would have given an apology to say, look, I wasn't there, I didn't do it, I got this witness, I got that witness, I'm not guilty. And it would have been written in a certain style, a certain way, there was a certain document called an apology. And Justin Martyr wrote an apology to the Roman Emperor to say, stop killing us, we don't eat people, and uh, we don't in engage in orgies, which were the two crimes that Christians were accused of, uh, based on the Lord's Supper and love feasts, basically a potluck meal in the early church. Um, that is neither here nor there. But Tertullian also wrote an apology, and his was really the preeminent one uh, of the second century. It was an amazing book. Um, it was the first book that he probably wrote, and uh, clearly he was interested in not only asking the emperor to please stop killing us, but also it was very much trying to con to, to prove that Christianity um, is the true religion, that it is good for the empire, uh, that, that everybody should be saved. And so he's very passionately um, devoted to sharing his faith and to... Um, even explaining his faith to other unbelievers. But he's not making use of Greek philosophy to do it. What he is making use of is um, his training as a lawyer, because he was trained as a lawyer, and he has a very sharp wit. He has very clear, linear thinking. He's a very clear thinker. Uh, he's, he's great fun to read because he's very witty, and he's very sharp, and he's very straightforward. Uh, he'd make a great preacher. I'm sure he did make a great preacher. But, you might ask, what is a Greek to do? Somebody that has spent, you know, got their grade school, secondary school, postdoctorate studies, or the equivalent in the time, all in, you know, Aristotle's metaphysics and Plato's um, Republic, and he's coming along with with these doctrines that don't seem to make sense to the Greek mind. What are they supposed to do? Um, Origen's answer was, well, understand Greek philosophy and explain the gospel in Greek f philosophical terms. And that led to problems because it was basically redefining Christianity within Greek philosophical terms. Tertullian's answer, at least in part, was credo quia absurdum. I believe because it is absurd. And this uh, this is his second most famous citation. Um, I believe because it is absurd. Uh, it needs to be taken in context. Let's look up the context of that. Right, I found it here. Um, I think I'm going to read another lengthy section. Um, I really like reading Tertullian, and you get a, kind of a flavor for how how he works, and this is going to become relevant as we talk about how he didn't use philosophy, but he did use rhetoric. Uh, so look at how he builds his argument, and he really uses um, 
kind of sarcasm and irony here as a powerful force. Uh, so he's talking against Marcion here, uh, who, and others that would say Jesus did not die physically, um, because that's shameful for God to become man and then die. This is the similar thing that Muslims will often say against Christianity. Um, and uh, so he's got this response here. Uh, so chapter 5 of On the Flesh of Christ. So we're going to pick it up about halfway through the section here of chapter 5 of On the Flesh of Christ. Have you then cut away all sufferings from Christ on the ground that as a mere phantom he was incapable of experiencing them? We have said above that he might possibly have undergone the unreal mockeries of an imaginary birth and infancy. But answer me at once, you murderer of truth. Was not God really crucified? And having, having been really crucified, did he not really die? And having indeed really died, did he not really rise again? Falsely did Paul determine to know nothing amongst us but Jesus and him crucified. Falsely has he impressed upon us that he was buried. Falsely in inculcated that he rose again. False, therefore, is our faith also, and all that we hope for from Christ will be a phantom. O thou most infamous of men, who acquittest of all guilt the murderers of God! For nothing did Christ suffer from them, if he really suffered nothing at all. Spare the whole world's one only hope, thou who art destroying the indispensable dishonor of our faith. Whatsoever is unworthy of God is of gain to me. I am safe, if I am not ashamed of my Lord. Whosoever, says he, shall be ashamed of me, of him will I also be ashamed. Other matters for shame find I none which can prove me to be shameless in a good sense, and foolish in a happy one, but my own contempt of shame. The Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed, because men must needs be ashamed of it. And the Son of God died. It is by all means to be believed, because it is absurd. And he was buried and rose again. The fact is certain, because it is impossible. How will all this be true in him, if he was not himself true, if he had not really had in himself that which might be crucified, might die, might be buried, and might rise again? I mean the flesh, this flesh suffused with blood, built up with bones, interwoven with nerves, entwined with veins, a flesh which knew how to be born and how to die, human without doubt, as born of a human being. It will therefore be mortal in Christ, because Christ is man and the son of man. Else why is Christ man and the son of man, if he has nothing of man and nothing from man? Unless it be either that man is anything else than flesh, or man's flesh comes from any other source than man's or Mary is anything else than a human being, or Marcion's man is as Marcion's God. I just want to keep going here because it has... Um, well, I'll skip down here. Thus the nature of the two substances displayed him as a son of man and of God, in one respect born and in the other unborn, in one respect fleshly and the other spiritual, in one sense weak and in the other exceeding strong, in, a, in a, one sense dying and in the other living. So anyways, it's just interesting that he really has the two natures of Christ uh, there cemented in mid-2nd century, uh, way before um, you know the doctrine of the Trinity was totally figured out. But uh, I, I digress. The main point here is, I am not ashamed because men must needs be ashamed of it. And the Son of God died. It is by all means to be believed because it is absurd. 
and he was buried and rose again. The fact is certain because it is impossible. Um, <clears throat> so there's two ways of... Well, the reason for reading all that was to say you really need to see that citation within the larger context. And he's really talking about the mystery of the Incarnation and the Resurrection. Um, so there's a more positive way of interpreting uh, Tertullian here in a more literal or perhaps negative way. Um, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says that uh, the gospel has just that queer twist about it that real things have. And uh, he says the planets are not equal distances from the sun. They're not smaller to larger. This is C.S. Lewis talking. Um, the nature, you know, you got the atoms and quarks and all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, nature is just, it's always surprising. It's not what you would expect. And um, in the same way, the gospel is... It makes sense, but it's weird. It's not something we would have invented. So this is one historic way of interpreting uh, Tertullian's words that uh, we believe because it is absurd. Um, a more uh, literal way of reading it is just faith sometimes is straight out against rationality. It does not make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. Just believe. Um, and uh, as one of my students... Um, as she was expressing her gratitude for my apologetics class, said, um, sometimes I feel as though, well, she was speaking of a specific church, she said, when I was going to that church, I felt as though I was being asked to leave my brain in a bucket in, in the garbage can on the way in the door and pick it up on the way out if you'd like, but just believe uh, in, in complete, even though it doesn't make any sense, even because it doesn't make sense, just believe. And so there's um, some debate about how Tertullian would have workshopped this out in himself, what he actually meant by that. Um, but certainly if there was a Greek, um, if there was some, an educated Greek person that had um, really sophisticated questions, hey, what about the demiurge? What about the eternality of matter? What about... Um, the formal cause of, of matter being the soul or, you know, something like this. Tertullian would have just said, suck it up and believe. Um, and if that didn't work for them, knowing Tertullian, he probably would have made fun of them <laughs> and found some way through rhetoric um, to, to push them into saying, look, you just need to believe. Um, this is just how it is. Uh, and certainly you can see some equivalents, some similarities in, in today's day and age of uh, that way of approach. Um, it's fascinating how attracted I am to Tertullian's writings and how repulsed I am to his method at times. Uh, because I love his stuff. Uh, my book of Tertullian is just full of bookmarks. I, I love his writing. Uh, so let's move on to critique. We critique the liberal approach to um, Greek philosophy. Let's have a look at Tertullian's conservatism. Is it orthodox? Yeah. I mean, he's... It's... Um, the Bible says it, that settles it. I believe it. No, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, so you would think, yeah, he's orthodox. Is it useful? Yes and no. Um... Tertullian is known as the father of 
Latin theology. Um, in the West, um, this is a bit of history here, but the church split between the East and the West. Uh, the West spoke, the Western Empire of the Roman Empire uh, was mostly uh, Roman and mostly spoke uh, Latin. The Eastern part was mostly Greek and mostly spoke Greek. Um, and uh, that political divide eventually led to um, a church divide. And so when we talk about Western faith or the Latin faith, we're talking about the church on the West side of, of Europe. Uh, and we talk about orthodoxy, we're talking usually about the Eastern side, as well as the South. Um, North Africa is part of the Eastern uh, church. Um, although Tertullian is North African, um, might have that wrong, but, but certainly around, um, like Egypt and, uh, North, North, um, like Assyria and Palestine, that's all part of, of Orthodox, of, of the Eastern Church. Um, I think Tertullian was part of the Western part, I think he was from Carthage, so on the West in, uh, is that present-day Morocco? I digress. Um, so, um... Tertullian was extremely helpful to the church in formulating the Trinity and formulating um, parts of doctrine. Um, his books, you know, are, are very readable, very understandable, very direct, very clear. Uh, not everything he said was was readily acceptable, but everything was very, very understandable and clear. Um, but was it useful in evangelism? Uh, again, it's really hard to say on this side of history whether... Um, he made many converts, or whether his his way of thinking led to a lot of converts. But I just kind of have this guess that uh, it would have met with less success than, for example, Origen's approach. You don't hear him, you don't hear about him being kind of the center of an academic hub of like all these, you know, intellectuals kind of gathering around him and being like, wow, what are you doing? I want, I want in. As with Origen, it was very much that. I mean, people that even weren't Christians, weren't even super interested in Christianity, just wanted to hang out with Origen and, and pick his brain for a while because he was such an interesting guy. Um, so it seems less helpful in in the sense of creating converts, although he did write the Apology, which was super important uh, and likely uh, did win some converts that way. Um, now... What about coherent? Does it make sense? This is kind of a big problem for Tertullian, at least as I read him, as I try and understand him, because as I was reading through him for um, one of my assignments, uh, my reading project, I found it fascinating that in his book on idolatry, he spends a long time talking about um, whether or not a Christian can be a schoolteacher. And I wondered, what in the world, why does this matter? I mean, of course a Christian can be a school teacher. Well, in the time that he was teaching, um, to be a school teacher, you would have been trained in Aristotle and Plato and, and all these guys. And you also would have been trained in uh, the Greek gods, and you would be teaching this to your students. And so he said basically, no, um, a Christian cannot be a teacher, because that would be... In becoming involved in idolatry, this is uh, his his treatise uh, on idolatry, um, 
called treatise on idolatry. Um, and so he, he, he wrestles with that, and he says, no, somebody cannot be a teacher. But a Christian cannot do without literary instruction, he says in chapter 10 of this book. Um, so Christians are allowed to study, um, but they can't be teachers. It's kind of inconsistent, isn't it? And what, what's going to happen when Christianity eventually takes over the empire? Now, everybody's a Christian. Um, who's going to be the teachers? Is Christianity dependent on um, non-Christianity, uh, on another religion, or on atheism to be its teachers? It's just not really a totally coherent, workable system. Um, he says that Christians can study... Um, but knowing how much evil is involved in philosophy and, and these other things, uh, he says this, so quote, a Christian will behave like the man who receives a cup with poisoned contents from someone not aware of this fact. He will accept it, but not drink from it. Um, so th there is kind of some truth here. Uh, when you go to your first year um, university class and you sit in philosophy one, I mean, if you can imagine yourself receiving a cup filled with poison, the teacher doesn't know it's poison. Um, but if you can just know that, <laughs> that might help you get through and just kind of take it with, um, as you would say, a grain of salt. Um, but he doesn't really workshop this out. He just says philosophy is evil, but you need to go to school. <laughs> so don't drink the Kool-Aid. Good luck. <laughs> and, and so... I'm not going to give him full marks for consistency because he's, he's got to workshop it out better than this. And that's where, as we're going to see, Augustine does a much better job of equipping Christians to say, okay, you need to get an education, you need to study, and here's how you can do that without, um, without A, checking your brain at the door, and without B, selling out to, to liberalism or, or whatever the dominant philosophy is of your day. Um, so I'm going to give him less than full marks for consistency. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't seem as though he, he really workshops this out adequately. Also, surprisingly, um, you would think that he's very orthodox, but actually surprisingly, perhaps not surprisingly, if you know somebody like Tertullian, um, he was seen as a schismatic, not a heretic, but a schismatic, um, which is why so a schismatic is somebody that causes unnecessary division in the church. Um, and this is why we talk about uh, St. Augustine, we talk about St. Thomas Aquinas, and we talk about Tertullian. Um, conspicuously absent is the sainthood. Um, the Catholic Church never made him a doctor of the church, never made him a saint, even though he is the father of Latin theology. He is the bedrock foundation of Western... I mean, everything kind of starts with Tertullian. Uh, obviously, there's people before him, but he, he's, he's the father. He's, he's the guy. Um, but his, his tendency led him increasingly towards more and more extreme directions. Um, he, he got more ascetic, which means more focused on kind of extreme treatment of the body, more focused on, um, well, 
um, although he was married, he believed that he couldn't have sex with his wife, and he thought that other people shouldn't have sex with their wives either, which caused problems. I would object to that. Um, he was very uh, hard line on head coverings for women, um, and he was very hard line on um, or some other things. I can't pull them all off the top of my head, but uh, he has a list of treaties. Oh, um, well, uh, I read him because of his association with pacifism. He was very explicitly a pacifist, as were most most of the early church fathers were pacifists, but they didn't talk about it a lot. He talked about it a lot, which is why he's really important for that topic. Um, but unlike most of the early church fathers that said, okay, you can be a soldier, just don't kill anybody, he said, no, you can't even be a soldier. If you're in the army, you get converted to Christianity. You need to um, basically commit suicide. You need to um, defect from the army, which meant being killed. And he's got a, a tract called uh, On the Chapulet. The Chapulet was the, the soldier's crown, the, the, the leafy thing that soldiers would wear in a formal procession. Um and there was one soldier that became a Christian, so he threw off his, his chapulet, and then he was executed for um, for defecting. And so he writes this whole treatise to say what he did was right, and, and all soldiers should do that. Um, so he kind of, he's tending towards like these more and more extreme views. Um, he calls out the Bishop of Rome, uh, what would later become known as the Pope, um, for some of his decisions. Um, and... Uh, He's he eventually joins a sect called the Montanists, um, which put a strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit, on prophecy, on scriptures, and they believe that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime, and they kind of create this this separate little identity off on a mountain somewhere, and they're waiting for Jesus, and they're reading the Bible and praying and and doing their thing, um, and so I mean obviously. Uh, oversimplification of what all was going on towards the end of his life, but um, so was Tertullian orthodox? Actually um, when people are studying Tertullian, as I did a lot for my paper on pacifism uh, or my reading project on, on pacifism the big question is when did he write this? Because towards the end of his life, most people would agree he kind of went off the deep end uh, and so some works, I mean, the Apology, you know that he wrote, was the first one. And then some of his works, you know, like the Chaplet, was definitely towards the end. And a lot of works, you don't really know where they fit in between. And so the big question, especially for Catholics, because Catholics would really put a big emphasis on, you know, when the Bishop of Rome said, you're out, you know, and when he made that split and joined the Montanists. Um, the big question is, is this an earlier or late writing? Because somewhere in here he really left the church and, and tried to start his own thing. Um, and so he doesn't really get full marks for orthodoxy either in my mind. It's fascinating to me that in focusing on the Bible alone, um, just what the Bible says, we won't let ourselves be corrupted by philosophy. We won't let ourselves be corrupted by um, what anybody else says. We're just going to focus on the Bible and the Holy Spirit, and God's going to speak to me. This ended up leading, leading him off into left field. Um, <laughs> isn't that amazing that in the second century, the same stuff was happening as happens so often 
in 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 our context in the super bible believing hardliner independent church you know we don't we're not going to study philosophy we're not even going to study theology you know we're not we're not part of any large denomination because that's too much theology we're not I, I don't read theology books anymore. I just read the Bible. I just read the strongest commentary in the Bible. That's it, you know. Uh, certainly, like, that's great. Uh, I, I don't want to be derogatory towards that. Maybe it sounds like I'm being derogatory. Uh, that's my lifeblood. That's my home. That's the church I grew up in. That's There's so much good in that. And yet, there can be this tendency of that actually leading away from orthodoxy. Um, we should probably mention at this point, Tertullian was, people would would never accuse him of starting a heresy. His theology was always good. Um, he just couldn't get along with anybody towards the end of his life. Uh, and he couldn't, he had such rigid ideas about what Christians had to do, quote-unquote, um, that it led him to increasingly um, extreme views and kind of he excluded himself from the larger community of, of Christianity. So those are kind of the two extremes uh, so far. You have Clement and Origen on one extreme, pretty much just married to philosophy and, and their theology kind of goes increasingly towards the direction of being synchronized with with philosophy and increasingly um, philosophy starts to change the doctrines of the church until it becomes almost unrecognizable or at least on fundamental points um, Jesus is no longer God uh, for some of the disciples of origin creating Arianism on the other extreme you have Tertullian who is so focused on the Bible only and the Holy Spirit speaking to me and um, not looking at theology or philosophy and not really listening to what a lot of other people have to say, he kind of goes off the deep end on the other side of, of things, um, focused on, and, you know, his system kind of misses the mark on, on all counts, on orthodoxy, on usefulness, and on coherence. Um, so let's now look, and obviously there's plenty of people in between, these are just the extremes, uh, there's tons of good stuff in the early church, obviously that's my favorite part of church history, um, but let's move on in the next podcast now to talk about Augustine, who really had a way of um, bringing these two together and creating a system that would provide the bedrock of Christianity, um, well, for the rest of of Christian history, but especially be, what would be the bread and butter of, of Christian theology up from the fourth cent fifth, from the fourth and fifth century when Augustine lived, all the way up to uh, about the time of Thomas Aquinas um, during the uh, High Medieval Period in the eleven hundreds. So we'll pick that up in the next podcast, and I'm gonna go to sleep. Have a good night. Bye.